Brothers and sisters, hear the good news of your forgiveness. For indeed you are forgiven through the blood of Christ Jesus that he shed at the cross for your sins. He died as a substitute for you, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the shepherd for his sheep, and the king for his people. He was the perfect sacrifice and therefore the perfect substitute. For in his death he takes away sins once for all time. There was no blemish or imperfection in him. His blood was costly, and he shed it on the cross for you. So brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. All of God's people say, Amen. Amen. The reading of God's word this morning begins in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thickness, thick cloud where God was. We'll turn now to Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. 
And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only the high priest enters, once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment has been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can ever by the same sacrifices, year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Let's turn now to the back of our bulletins and read together as a congregation, Psalm 8.
Soulmate, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I conducted an unintentional experiment last week, which condemns at least half of you as not listening to a word I say. Maybe condemnation is not the right word here, but um, I know that at least half of you will take every opportunity to mock me, and yes, I know who you are. And yet, last week, in the sermon, I told you that daylight savings occurred on Saturday night last week. Not a single person corrected me. I lived under that delusion for the subsequent four days. (laughs) You know, with the advent of automatic clocks, I just assumed my wife was ahead when I got up that Sunday morning at 4 o'clock and had reset all the non-autonomous clocks. It turns out that I was, I was living a lie. And it's amazing to me that I could go that long into the week without realizing it, that my time was off. Now, what's even more amazing is uh, time is sometimes a little crunched for me on Saturday night. And so I, I, I have a self-appointed bedtime upon which I'm comfortable, and then I thrash around and fail to fall asleep for another few hours, and then get up really early. Because of daylight savings, or my delusion thereof, I, I thought I had a whole extra hour. I thereby slept less, but felt more rested. So that tells you something about the way that our bodies work. Uh, we believe things, and they affect us. So we're in the end of Colossians chapter 2 this week, and it does have something to do with time and time changes and understanding the times. And this is what Paul's been driving at all along. So we're finally getting to the point of his warning or the the pointed barbs of what he wants to warn the church at Colossae uh, about. And and there's some very specific things with regards to the Judaizers, and and it can take a little bit for us to to, um, enter the text and understand what he's writing to them, 
before we come back out and try to apply it to ourselves. So that's our, our goal today. My intention is to take two weeks on chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, uh, but that may or may not happen. So with that, let's go ahead and read. We're going to read again the section uh, starting from verse 6 in chapter 2 and reacquaint ourselves with this text. Paul says this, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, through empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elements of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of God dwells in body, and in him you have been filled, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and the stripping of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him, through faith in the work of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having blotted out the handwriting consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the middle, having nailed it to the cross, And when he had stripped the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, things which are a shadow of what is to come but the body of Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in humility and the worship of angels entering on what he has seen and arrogant in his mind of flesh, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to these elements of the world, why, why would you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all referring to things destined to perish with the eating, in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These have the word of wisdom, a delight in worship and humility and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against filling up the flesh. If you would pray with me. Father, we come to your word, and we know that we need your work in us to enlighten it so that our eyes can see the truth of what you're saying. We pray that you would make those words powerful, and that you would bore out our ears to hear what you have for us this morning. And so we pray that you would speak to us through the word made flesh, our Savior Jesus, and in so doing, you would cut us apart, make us new this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So the book of Colossians, Paul's been moving along, and and we've been focused rather narrowly on on verses 6 through 15 for the last last month or so. But he he began by giving thanks, if you remember. 
He gave thanks because they've heard the gospel. They've heard the word of truth and they've taken it in themselves. And they're filled up with faith and hope and a love for all the brethren. So he's thankful for what God has done. And then his prayer evolves out of that thankfulness, praying that God would do even more of what he'd already done. So that the, the gospel that's taken root in their lives would, would be made known to them in an even fuller way. That they would increase in the knowledge of God. And in that increase, they would bear fruit and increase in every good work. That they would be pleasing to the Lord that made them. And... In chapter 1, it's been a few months, he ends that sequence of, of verbs in verse 12. He says that we're to give thanks to the Father. So having grown in knowledge and wisdom, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in every respect, strengthened so we do all of this according to His power with the effect, the end effect, is that we're overflowing with thanksgiving to the Father. And then he gives this reason why. He's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So he's made us fit. He's made us ready to take part in the inheritance that the whole world has been waiting for. And that's when he moves into the discussion of the Son, the Son that brings this fullness to be. The beloved Son in verse 13, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, the one who is the Creator. By him all things were made in the heavens and the earth. And key to that passage is that he is firstborn twice. He's firstborn of all creation, and he's firstborn from the dead. We see in the rest of the New Testament that uh, God is pointing us that Jesus, as the firstborn, is leading behind him a whole host of brothers. And so he's first. He's first in creation. He's first after death in the new creation, and he leads us behind him into this inheritance. And that inheritance is the one that Paul has his eyes fixed on. So verses 24, sorry, chapter 1, 24 through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, My part in all of this is I follow in the footsteps of Christ. I walk where he walked, I suffer where he suffered, all so that that word might be fulfilled, so that that inheritance, now called the mystery, might come about. And what is that mystery which has been hidden from past generations, in verse 26, but has now been made manifest? It is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, Christ and you. And the word that he uses there is that God willed, and it can be translated that God delighted. It was his pleasure to make known this mystery. And so Paul says, because I've received the benefits, I follow in line with that. And it's Paul's pleasure in chapter 2, verse 1, I will to you, I delight to make known to you the struggle I have on your behalf in the unveiling of this mystery so that your hearts may be encouraged, so that you may be knit together in love, receiving the full wealth that comes from the assurance of understanding of the true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. So all of this is about unveiling Christ in our share in Christ, our inheritance in Christ. This is the mystery, the hope of glory in you, the Gentiles. So chapter 2, verses, uh, sorry, chapter two verses 6 through 15 how they function in the text is Paul's calling us, so he reminds us what we're supposed to do. As you receive Jesus as Christ, the anointed and Lord, Yahweh, walk in him, and you walk in him with this warning in the back of your mind. Make sure that nobody's going to take you captive. And then he's telling us how, how was that inheritance gained? How was the mystery uncovered? It was uncovered in Jesus the one in whom the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. If you remember, I've harped on it over the last few weeks, all the way from the beginning. This is what we need. If, if God does not strive with us, 
in our body, we have no life. We're, we're nothing but dead, empty bodies walking around. And so we see the first inklings of what God is doing in Christ, the firstborn from the dead, and we see it because God dwells with him in bodily form, in the form that we take. And then in him, we also have been filled. And there's competing fillings in our, in our passage. So the same root is the one that's used in verse 23. There's a competing filling of the flesh, which has nothing to do with Christ. Instead, it's done by the traditions of men according to the elements of the world. That's what we're going to get to today. But then verses 11 through 15, he tells us properly, how can this be? How can the Gentiles who had no hope in the world, who were part of the uncircumcision, how can they be made into the hope of glory? How can they be united, Jew and Gentile, one, being filled with Christ? It's because he circumcised us with a circumcision made without hands, making us into that temple, the dwelling place of God himself. It's because we've been united with Christ in baptism, having brought us through burial, death, resurrection, so that we are made alive together with him, and that's what's key. We are alive with Christ. And he writes that in the present tense, that he makes us, he has made us alive so that we stand now with our Savior Jesus. And then he's getting to the two points of verses 14 and 15 that are important for our text today. Two reasons, because he's blotted out the handwriting that stood against us. Remember that handwriting is the law. It spoke out against us, whether Jew or Gentile, it was either speaking against us in the decrees that we had failed or hostile to us in setting us outside because the division in the flesh kept us away from the dwelling, indwelling of God. That has been blotted out and that Jesus took it and on the cross, even though the, the top of the cross said King of Kings, or sorry, King of the Jews, the writing that Paul sees on the cross is this, the law nailed there, written on the body of flesh of Jesus, and that law was canceled, blotted out. And then secondly, in that same act, in that same act, when his body of flesh was stripped in the circumcision of Christ, there was an inversion in which he stripped the rulers and the authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them. So if you remember from last week, those last two points, they correspond then to Paul's warnings to us. So if you look at verses 16 through 23, it falls into three sections. And there, there's, three, there's three commands, or, or two commands and a query. So if you look at verse 16, the first command is, Therefore, let no one act as your judge. Don't be judged in this matter. So that's the, the first section of verses 16 and 17. He's going to give a, a, a reason the second section in verses 18 and 19 is, again, a, a different word for judge, now more related to a, a referee, or a, a ruler who decides between people. Let no, one, uh, let no one rule you out of your prize. So picture of a game, and, and you're said, nope, you're, you, you don't win, you're not in. Let no one rule you out of your prize by delighting in humility and the worship of angels. And then finally in verse 20, if you have died with Christ to the elements of the world... Why would you live in the world submitting yourselves to these decrees? And so remember those, those last two sections, the external things to us. Jesus, Jesus has forgiven our transgressions. He circumcised us. We're united with him in baptism so that we stand alive. But then external to us, he has blotted out 
that certificate of decrees. So if you look at the third section, verse 20, those decrees are found in verse 20. If you have been made alive, if you died with Christ and now you're alive so that you no longer live according to the old world, the elements of the old world, why would you submit yourself to those decrees that have been put to death on the cross? They've been removed. And so those decrees are gone. And then verses 16 through 19, the two sections there are both about judgment. And remember, he starts them with therefore. So they hinge off of verse 15. When he had stripped the rulers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. Therefore, therefore, don't let them judge you. And there's a specific aspect to this judgment. And this is not a command that we're generally very comfortable with. Usually in the New Testament, especially with these kinds of items, food and drink. So if you think about 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14, the command is inverted. Don't judge one another. When it's talking about the weak brother and the strong brother, so don't judge one another. Don't make a divide. But here, here the emphasis is different. He says, don't be judged. And it's... These two truths are then arriving out of what Jesus has done. Because he stripped the rulers and authorities, do not let them judge you. Now, the rulers and authorities that were stripped, what Jesus did is on the cross, even as he was dying, he made a public spectacle of them. They were shown to be empty and vain, filled with nothing, and he triumphed over them. You remember that that word triumphed is a word that describes what Roman generals did as they won the battle. They brought all their prisoners behind them. And I, I just to fill out uh, what Paul is saying, I'm going to show you, if you don't remember, from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this is the only other time that Paul uses that, that word. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ, manifesting through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, for we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So simultaneously in the triumph of Jesus over the rulers and the authorities, Paul sees himself. Remember, he had aligned himself with the rulers and authorities, and we're going to talk more about that next week who those rulers and authorities are specifically in this text. But Paul had aligned himself with those rulers and authorities. And so Paul sees himself then as being stripped at the cross, being led about in triumph. And now his ministry is being shown in Christ's triumph as defeated, but won. And so in verse 16, when he says, let no one act as your judge, it's both to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, so we can think generally here, we'll get into specifics next week, of, of both the Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities and the angels and the principalities that correspond in the heavenly places and all those who follow in their stead. So all the Judaizers that have aligned themselves with that group do not let them judge you. And important to our understanding of this command, what is judgment? What does that mean? In our modern day context, we've kind of taken that to mean don't let anybody say any nasty words about you. And that's a related concept, but that's not what judgment means. Judgment means divide, separate, exclude. 
So specifically here, don't let anyone judge you by, or divide you. So speaking to the church at Colossae, don't let anybody come in and divide you based on what? Food, drink, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths. That's his first list. And remember, there's three of these. And he's going to give us three reasons why. So before we get to the heart of this, this verse, just notice with me, and we'll, we'll talk about each of these in some depth. Verse 17, the first reason why is because these kinds of things were just a shadow. So there was, there was a real application of them, but they were a shadow of what was to come, but the body belongs to Christ. So the first reason is because they are no more. We've changed ages. They were a shadow, and now the reality is here. The substance is here. So don't let anyone judge you according to these items. Then in verse 18 and 19, there's a second reason. And the reason is because those who would judge according to these, these kinds of things, and he has a, another list here, kind of a, they delight in humility, worship of angels, they enter on visions. Those are really a, a bit difficult to understand, so we'll have to walk through those lists carefully. But if you look at the end of verse 18, there's, there's a, a reason why we wouldn't allow ourselves to be judged there either. Is because they're inflated, they're arrogant in their mind of flesh. So the ones who would judge this way, they're, one of the translations is puffed up. It's the same word that Paul uses in, in uh, 1 Corinthians. And so there, there is this ballooning of the head. But in verse 19, you have a contrast to that. So they, they, they grow in their self-estimation. They're arrogant in their mind of flesh. But those who would judge this way are not bound to Christ, and they don't grow with real growth. So if you allow yourself to judge, you'll become like them. You'll stunt your growth, you'll be divorced from the head, and you will not live with Christ. Verses 20 through 23, he repeats each of these reasons. So verses 22, all these things refer to things that perish with the eating. So they're a shadow. They have a, a, an end to come. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And they're in accordance with commandments and the teachings of men, so they're no longer coming from God. There's an arrogance in these kinds of commandments. And then finally, at the end of verse 23, his summary of it all is they don't do these commandments and these rulers don't accomplish the very thing that they set out to accomplish. They have no value against the war on flesh, against the false filling of the flesh. They're worthless. And so those three reasons stand against us. Why would you not let anybody judge you? Because these rules and these rulers are just a shadow. Jesus is here. Because these rulers are arrogant, and if you follow their rules, you'll be cut off from the head Christ who gives true growth. And because these rules and these rulers provide no value against the filling of the flesh. They don't do what they promise to do. Okay, so with that, verse 16, we're going to dive into this list. Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or on the part of feasts, new moons, or Sabbath days. There's, there's a separation here. These two things go together, but there's two lists, food and drink, and then the list of the feast days. Feasts, new boons, Sabbaths. And so we have to deal with those somewhat separately. But I had Hyde read out of Hebrews chapter 9 this morning because the author of the Hebrews 
proving that he's probably Paul, is, says in verse 10, this, this same list, but with one addition. He says in chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, mature in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink, various baptisms, regulations for the flesh imposed until a time of reformation. But Christ has appeared. So food and drink. When we think about the regulations of food and drink, these are, these are primarily thinking about Jewish regulations because that's where the division occurs. If you divide between Jew and Gentile, between the law that was given, the law that was nailed to the cross in verse 14, that food and drink is one, one of the dividing factors. So if you would, uh, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, 11, and all the way through chapter 20, you have these laws, these regulations. And there is a number of food regulations. We're familiar with those. There's un unclean and clean animals. So if you're a Jew, if you're circumcised, if you're under the Mosaic Covenant, you cannot partake of clean animals. In fact, you're not even to touch them lest they contaminate you and in their death. But the drink laws, there's very few of those. And so it's interesting that this shows up again and again in the New Testament. And so Leviticus chapter 10, it begins with the sin of Nadab and Abihu. And we have to have that context in order to understand this, this chapter. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what Yahweh spoke, saying, By those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. Before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Moses called also to Mishael and to Elizaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, so that you may not die, and that he may not become wrathful against all the assembly. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which Yahweh has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For Yahweh's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. Then Yahweh spoke to Aaron. It's a strange context for this. Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you may not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and so as to make a distinction, a judgment, between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which Yahweh has spoken to them through Moses. So here we have then this commandment. Do not drink wine or strong drink when you come into the tent of meeting so that you may not die. It is to make this 
this separation, this judgment, this distinction between what's holy and what's common. This and the associated Nazarite law are the only drink laws in the Old Covenant. Then Moses spoke to Aaron and to his surviving sons, Eliezer and Ithamar, take the grain offering that is left over from Yahweh's offerings by fire and eat it unleavened besides the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it moreover in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due out of Yahweh's offerings by fire, for thus I have been commanded. The breast of the wave offering, however, and the thigh of the offering you may eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they have been given as your due and your sons due out of the sacrifice of the peace offerings of the sons of Israel. The thigh offered by lifting up, the breast offering by waving, they shall bring along with the offerings of the fire of the portions of fat to present as wave offerings before Yahweh. So it shall be a thing perpetually due to you and to your sons with you, just as Yahweh commanded. But Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eliezer and Ithamar, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy. And he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before Yahweh. Behold, since its blood has not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you certainly should have eaten it in the sanctuary just as I commanded. But Aaron spoke to Moses, Behold, this very day they present, presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before Yahweh. When things like these happened to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of Yahweh? And when Moses heard that, it seemed good in his sight. Then Yahweh spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying, And speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from. All the animals are on the earth. Whatever divides a hoof, makes split hoofs, and choose the cud among animals, that you may eat. I'm not going to read the rest of that chapter. You, you all have, have read it. But bookending then this, this section about eating the sacrifice, we have the commandment about not drinking wine in the tent, and then we have the commandments about the common and the holy animals, clean and unclean. Some are set apart for holy purposes, and some are set apart for common purposes. In the middle, we have this discussion of the sacrifices that Moses makes after the sins and the burning up of his sons. I'm sorry, Aaron makes after the sins and the burning up of his sons, Nadab and Abihu. And particularly here, we have the first uh, employment of the laws of what can the priest eat and what can he not eat. So he can't, can't drink wine or strong drink in the presence of the Lord. And then verses 12 through 19, we won't read the, the text backwards in Leviticus in chapter 4 and chapter 6, but there's a set of rules, and the rules go like this. Of, of the sin offerings, the priest can eat, but not if the blood is brought into the sanctuary, not if it's for him, and not if it's for all the people, but for the other ones, they must eat. So if the blood doesn't go into the sanctuary, then they must eat the sacrifice. And so there's a division there. In this particular story, Moses searched for the goat of the sin offering, but they had burned it up instead of eating it. And Aaron's answer is, well, my sin was on display. My sons were burnt up before the Lord, so it would not be appropriate for me to eat this sin offering. So what does it all mean? There is a separation of food and drink. You can't, can't bring the drink into the presence of the Lord. 
and there is a separation for all peoples of clean and unclean animals and a separation for the priests of the sacrifices they may eat and the sacrifices they may not eat. So they are to eat the, the sacrifices that represent the sin, the atonement offerings for others, but not for themselves. And this is a distinction. It's the distinction that we find at the end of the book of Hebrews in which he says, we have a different altar. We're commanded to eat. And the, the point is this. When we come to the new covenant, a shadow is gone and Christ has come. You cannot keep both sets of regulations. You, you, can't, you can't do them both. It's impossible because God calls us together and he calls us to eat and drink in his presence. And he calls us and he specifically says that we're eating at an altar which they had no right to eat at. They couldn't eat at. If you weren't priests, you definitely couldn't eat there. And if you were priests, you still couldn't eat of the altar that represents the sin sacrifice of God, of Jesus himself. And so there's this division. So if we come back to the book of Colossians, he says, let no one act, let no one divide you with in food or drink. Why ought no one to divide us in food or drink? These things are a shadow of what is to come, but the body is Christ. So there was a set of regulations about food or drink. We may be tempted to say that what Paul is doing here is he's dividing between what's physical and what's spiritual, but that's not the case. He's dividing between what was, what was a shadow, and what is now the state of living with Christ. And we know that because we have very physical commands which we follow. We come to eat, and we don't eat nothing. We don't just think about eating and drinking in our minds. Instead, we eat and we drink. And we come, we're going to see, on a, on a specific day of the week. And so the difference is not between what you do, whether it's physical or not physical, but rather the difference is between the old age and the new age. Don't let anybody judge you with regard to food or drink, particularly in this verse, because the reason is those things, those laws we read out of Leviticus chapter 10 and 11, they were given as a separation. They were given to make that distinction. And now in Christ, the mystery has been revealed. Jesus has come, and he has abolished those decrees, and he's abolished the rule of the rulers who implemented those decrees, so that if we submit to that kind of judgment then we are telling a lie about what Jesus has done. He nailed the decrees to the cross. He stripped the rulers and the authorities of their powers. So this is a little bit different from what we read about in Romans 14, where we're not to judge one another with regard to food or drink, with regard to uh, meat sacrifice to idols. But rather, the, the issue here is do we judge one another out of the body, or do we allow somebody else to judge us out of the body? And Paul says you cannot do that because the mystery unveiled of Christ dwelling in us, it's, it, it does not take place in Jews here and Gentiles here. It takes place in Jew and Gentile brought together in one new flesh. The God, the Spirit, dwells in this new man. And so we come to a table a table that's set differently from what the, the table was set before. It, and the, the two can't be combined. 
because we eat of the sin offering, we partake it in ourselves, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that in verse 22. And we drink of what was commanded you, you cannot drink about. You cannot drink in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. You can't go in, you can't partake. And so that separation is done away with, he says, because those rulers and authorities have been stripped of their power, of their rule and authority, because the decrees have been nailed to the cross, do not let anyone divide you here in food or drink. And secondly, he says, or on your part or in respect to the feasts, the new moons, or the Sabbath days, things which are a shadow of what is to come, but the body is Christ. So this list, this second list here, feasts, new moons, Sabbath days, it's a list you'll find throughout the Old Testament. You'll find it first in 1 Chronicles 23, 31, if you want to look, 2 Chronicles 2, 4, and you can keep going through, through the Old Testament. You'll find these three packaged together as feasts, new moons, and Sabbath days. We know a bit about the feasts. We know the seven feasts of Israel. Um, we, don't talk, we don't tend to talk too much about the new moons. And we're, when we think of Sabbath, we think of the weekly Sabbath. But, of course, there's a whole host of Sabbaths go, that go with it. This is, this is a summary list of Israel's appointed times in which they were to appear before God and to feast, or on one day a year, to fast, as on, on the Day of Atonement. He says, don't let anybody act as your judge in regard to those. Well, what's going on here? Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give lights on the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night, and he made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. So God, in his creation, he put these lights in the heavens, and he put them there as a separation a sign to point to him so that when you looked at the heavens, as Abraham looked at the heavens, you saw the promise of God. When you looked at the heavens, you knew what time it was. Not whether it was time to eat, although they regulate our, our, our day there too, but whether it was time to go meet with the Lord. So the, the word for seasons is the word appointed times. Those feasts, new moons, Sabbath days. When do you go meet with God? Well, you look to the heavens. And I didn't think this up, but if you pay close attention to the Old Testament, what you find is that they're regulated based on the moon. So as you, as you think about those festal days, they're regulated on the, the first of the month. Uh, you count the day from when the moon starts to appear, and then you have a, a Passover 14 days in, on the 14th day of the first month. You have the same with the Feast of Booths, 15 days in, when the moon is high in the sky and the night is bright, you come before the Lord, and if you pay attention to those feasts, they start in the night. You come on Sabbath day in the evening, and the, the beginning of the feast occurs. And on each of those, then you find that replication. It's a nighttime feast that goes from night to day. They're regulated by the moon that hangs in the sky, 
and that pattern of regulation disappears. So flip forward then to Revelation 22. We won't fill in all the details, but we'll give you the beginning and the end. Um, Revelation 21, sorry. It's giving the picture of the city, and remember the foundation is every kind of precious stone, and the walls are built up out of precious stone, and the city was pure gold like transparent glass in verse 21. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So you move from the beginning where the sun and the moon are appointed and the stars as governors. They're appointed for signs and for appointed times to go meet with God. And you look to the end of God's word and you see then that there is no more sun. Instead, the lamb enthroned is the sun. He is the one that gives the appointed times. This is why we can't be judged by the festal calendar of Israel because Jesus, the one who is the morning star, has come. And as he comes, he is the one that designates the appointed times. He is the one that gives the hour of worship. So this isn't, this isn't looking at, all right, we come to the New Testament and some people have then interpret this to mean that no one can be your judge whether, whether you come meet with God's people or not. Because there is no appointed time. That's not the case. Jesus is the appointer of times. Sun and moon and stars don't have governorship anymore because the true sun has come. There is no more nighttime. You can't have a, a lunar calendar when there's no night because you can't even see the moon. Instead, the morning star has arisen and he appoints for us then a time to come into God's house. So if we interpret this as a physical versus spiritual understanding, and that food and drink don't matter, and appointed times don't matter, we'll miss, we'll miss the very point, because the point is that reality has come. The true substance has come. And we are called into God's presence, and the very fact that we're called to not be judged by these things is to... Say, we will not be removed from God's presence based on this, based on food or drink or, or the feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths of the old creation because they have been done away. Remember that Israel's primary judgment in, when Judah was removed to Babylon, what were they judged for? Uh, they were judged for how they dealt with the poor, they were judged for how they dealt with the nations, but the, the physical decree they were dealt with was because they didn't abide by the Sabbath rest. Those decrees have been blotted out. So Paul says, do not let someone divide you over that because you can't follow both. You can't be one foot in the old and one foot in the new. Instead, cling to Christ because with him is life. So verse 17, why? Because those things, the food, the drink, the feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths, those things were a shadow of what is to come. 
but the substance belongs to Christ. L literally, it just says, but the body of Christ. But the body of Christ. We read in Hebrews chapter 10 uh, how, how the author of the Hebrews uses that same expression. The old, the old tabernacle was a shadow. It was a copy, an earthly copy of a heavenly reality. But what is true has come. The true body has come. And, and it's not on accident then that he uses the phrase, in contrast to a shadow, is the body of Christ. And it's no longer just Christ. And we're not just talking about his body of flesh because that was stripped on the cross. We're talking in dimensions now about Jesus, but also about all those attached to him. He is the firstborn among many brothers. He brings us along with him so that the reality, the substance, as opposed to the shadow, is the body of Christ. So you see that you defeat the very, the very fullness of what those laws were pointed to if we divide over those kinds of things. If we separate, and he's going he's gonna to give us what the new rule is in chapter 3. There's a new rule. We, we rule ourselves. We arbitrate. We decide who's in and out by based upon the peace of Christ having been bonded together in love. And so if we separate over these things, we're giving up the full reality of what Jesus has brought. We're giving up the very body of Christ in which he's made us alive together with him. We're giving up all of the truths of verses 11 to 15 if we judge ourselves or allow anybody else to judge us along these lines with regard to those things, if I, if I want to cling to what was. And, you know, praise be to God, we're not very tempted along the lines of Judaism anymore. We're not tempted to look back. We have other issues that divide us that we need to take application from this section and, and bring them into this new day. But the reality, the substance, the fullness of what Christ is bringing is us. The body of Christ bonded to the head, and we'll look at that in verse 19 more. We're knit together with him, and so when we divide over things that we ought not divide, divide over, whether they be the Judaism of the past or our new present-day delusions about the same kinds of issues, we still fight about these kinds of things. Food and, and drink and days. And Paul says, No. The shadow is gone, but the substance, the body, has come. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, I told you that the, the rainbow in the sky of the Noahic covenant was a picture of, of Jesus, the Lamb, sitting in the throne room of Revelation 21, shining through the temple that God has made without hands. And so that you get this rainbow through all of those precious stones, and it casts then an image backwards, which is a rainbow. But here, now you have the body of Christ, that same picture, casting a shadow backwards. So the Noahic rainbow is a shadow of the rainbow that sits around God's glory throne, which is us. The regulations were a shadow of the body of Christ, which is us. We have, then, the fullness of God dwelling in our midst. What makes this food and this drink different? Because they're just bread. And it's just a cup filled with wine. What makes them different is Jesus has come. He gives them, and he's going to give them in, uh, as an expression of the good gifts from him. So he's the one that gives meaning to them. Otherwise, they're meaningless. They're just food and drink that perish upon consumption. 
you remember back from James, he uses this word shadow there too. James chapter 1, he says, every good thing. So those things were just a shadow of the good things to come, but every good thing bestowed, every perfect, mature, telos gift, the end for which we're seeking is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. So there were shadows in the old that were pointing forward to the substance, the body of Christ, but now Jesus has come and those good gifts has arrived and there no longer is a shadow. There's no changing, there's no turning. The substance has arrived. So what do we make of this? We're going to make a lot more of it next week, but for today, fundamentally, and you'll hear this again and again and again in the New Testament, do not be divided over these things. There is a point of division when it comes down to sin and the works of the flesh. But that's not, that's not what Paul is after here. He says, you have been made alive together with Christ. When you, use, when you use the commandments of an age that Jesus has declared is over, or when you use man-made commandments, so that's in verse 22, we've talked about those already, to divide the body of Christ, you're giving up on the very prize that he promised. God dwells in us. If we split our ways and we go home alone, he does not dwell in us the same way anymore. That is the work of the flesh. If you would stand with me and let's praise Jesus who has made us one today. Father, we thank you that you have brought us from grace to grace and glory to glory, from strength to strength, and you have taken what was the shadow which you gave out of your goodness to preserve mankind, to teach us about sin and to train us to the point of maturity, and now you have arrived in the body, in the person of Jesus, and in your coming you have brought the fullness of the light of Christ to our midst. And Lord, it's our prayer that as we read texts like this, that we would hear Paul, that we would not be deluded or persuaded by the appearance of wisdom, by the kind of humility that strips us of the very prize for which we're seeking. But instead, Lord, that you would, you would take your words and fill us up with them so that we learn that we live with Christ, that we learn how to love one another because Christ has loved us. Lord, make us one this morning as we celebrate around your table your good gifts. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.